0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. My name is Ari Cohen-Wade, and I'm your host today uh, for a conversation with uh, Justin E.H. Smith. Uh, Justin, could you introduce yourself?
0: Hi, I'm uh, Justin E.H. Smith. That's Justin Eric Haldor Smith. Uh, I'm a professor of philosophy and history and philosophy of science at uh, the University of Paris, though I'm originally American. Uh, and I write these days on a lot more than just science and the history of philosophy. I also write on satire and politics and the current uh, cultural crises we face.
1: Uh, well, thank you for coming on today, and you're you're coming to us from Rome, so thank you for uh, doing a late-night <laughs> session uh, with us. I'm it, yeah. Uh, so the first thing and the main thing I wanted to talk about, and the reason I wanted to have you on, was you had an op-ed in the New York Times. Um, the Stone is kind of their philosophy subsection, and the headline is The End of Satire. Um, and this is also, I guess, part of or connected to a larger work uh, of yours, that's called. Uh, the title is "Irrationality: A History of the Dark Side of Reason." That's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, so, can, can you? Uh, why don't you? Why do we start off with saying, kind of where you start in this essay? Because it's, it's it's about kind of like changing your mind about about sure. satire. So,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's a long a long history to this, I suppose. I, I don't know where to start really, uh, but the argument of this very short piece in the New York Times is just that until. 2016, I had been a pretty uh, ardent, you might say strident, uh, defender of the absolute right of the satirist to uh, 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 target more or less uh, anyone or anything, um, sort of as a combination of a uh, commitment to what in the United States is, uh, protected under the First Amendment, uh, but also I think, uh, as a result of my idea, my philosophical idea, I suppose, that, um, that satire is a different mood of speech, so to speak. And I, I mean this in a grammatical sense, right? You have uh 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 the uh declarative, uh you have the interrogative uh and other such uh uh uh, uh forms uh that sentences take and you a- analyze their meaning in very different ways according to the mood they uh they, they fall under. Um, so if I ask you, "Are you hungry?" Uh, the the way you understand that sentence is entirely different than if if, if I say, "You are hungry," right? Mm-hmm. So similarly, I had long thought that there ought to be recognized something like, so to speak, a satirical mood, right? Uh, in which, if you hear someone saying something that in a declarative sentence would be absolutely horrible. Nonetheless, given that it's not a declarative sentence, it's a satirical sentence, you need to understand it differently, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the commitment to freedom of speech, the commitment to this particular philosophical analysis of satire made me think anything goes, pretty much. And throughout 2015, this commitment had been part of my arsenal my philosophical and polemical arsenal for doing battle with adversaries in the debate surrounding Charlie Hebdo. And maybe I should summarize a bit what that is. Uh, sure. Because, yeah, probably people uh, kind
1: of remember it, but it, it has been about four years now. So it's another country, and it's been a bit of
0: time. Um, but Charlie Hebdo is a French satirical magazine that emerged out of the ferment of the 1960s counterculture, and that was in its origins on the left. Um and that uh, uh, likes to poke fun at um, pious fools of all species, right? I mean, anyone who is overly, overly pious about pretty much anything. And traditionally in Charlie Hebdo's history, that included mostly um, clerics of the Catholic Church. Um, more recently, it spread to uh, imams and to anyone who is... Overly sensitive about the pieties of the Muslim faith, um, so by 2015, Charlie Hebdo had come uh, to loggerheads um, in a kind of tense and explicit standoff with um, uh, Islamic radicals. And early in 2015, in January 9th, I think it was, uh, two gunmen entered the Charlie Hebdo. Offices in Paris and assassinated. Um, I think nine people overall, including the main caricaturists for uh, for the magazine, some of whom had been there since the 1960s. Um, and so immediately after that, one of the one of the reactions I saw from my self-styled progressive friends mostly in the United States was the usual kind of quick kind of assurances that of course murder is always bad, but then followed up right away um, with, uh, with the further observation that you shouldn't go around making fun of people's faith, right? Mm-hmm. Which in context sounded a lot as much as to say, They got what they deserved. The caricaturists got what they deserved. So I was, I was stunned, um, both because I was so close to the actual assassinations and because I was sort of feeling uh, an unquestioned solidarity with the people who were gunned down. I was stunned to find friends. Um, talking as if it was their fault. So that was that was how I spent much of 2015 engaging in various polemics in the media and in person, um, in defense of satire. Right. Um, I spent, I spent a good portion of my intellectual energy in 2015 defending satire, um, and then the following year. Okay, in 2015, there are many, many things I didn't know about yet. Right? I didn't understand really what social media were. I mean, I'd had social media for a number of years, but I thought mostly I bought the Zuckerbergian line that you know that social media are for bringing people together and that that they make the world a better place. Over the course of 2016, I was uh, disabused of this naive view, right? And most of it for me came with the election of Donald Trump, who, uh, whom I see as a kind of congelation of uh, the kind of millions and millions and millions of rank gutter social media comments kind of, you know, thrown together in a single physical human being, right? (laughs) And that is uh, uh, something that was surprising to me, (laughs) surprising in a way that events of 2015 were surprising, in that I understood That a lot of the force of his success, of the, of the, the, a lot of the dynamics of the 2016 US presidential elections were the result of something that is kind of satire and yet that really Challenges my earlier belief that there is such a well-defined mood of human speech, right? Let me describe a little bit what I mean. I mean, we know we're looking at satire when we open Charlie Hebdo or when we get the onion or clay hole in our timeline. I mean, you know, New Yorker is so, is so, um, Concerned about uh, offsetting its satirical um, section, uh, which is this dismal Andy Borowitz character. Yes, <laughs> um, um,
1: the P- possibly the most prominent like person practicing satire in the U.S., and he's really, really not funny.
0: But it's really significant that he's the one who comes with the satire disclaimer, right? Mm-hmm. It says satire from the New Yorker, so that everybody will know, right? And I think there's a connection between that disclaimer and how bad he is, right? But um, in any case, we can maybe come back to that. in any case, we all know that when you, when you look at The Onion or Charlie Hebdo, you're looking at satire. Right. Mm. But what has happened in this strange ferment that also thrust Donald Trump forth in 2016 is that we have this new proliferation of the culture of memes, um, of uh, online communication that is in fact, more verbal than textual, even if it passes through textual traces, and that is ultimately, I think, uncategorizable and, so to speak, undomesticatable in the way that Andy Borowitz is domesticated and in the way that I used to think satire was ultimately domesticated or easily kind of... um, uh, uh, uh marked marked out and defined we have now a culture in which um, um, the line between satire and straightforward disinformation is not at all clear right uh-huh. and for that reason and I some of the examples I give in the New York Times piece are um, you know these uh Ultimately, AI driven feeds that, for example, post fake captions under, uh, media images. So, uh, they'll, uh, you know, there will be a picture of Helen Mirren and it will call her Queen Elizabeth, or there will be a picture of, uh, Samuel Jackson and it will call him Kofi Annan, and, you know, stuff like this. And the humor content is low. If at all detectable, but still, it's a kind of incongruity that suggests that there's something humorous going on there. But for all we know, this is being generated by by by, by machines alone, right? And um, so, when you're navigating that kind of uh, that kind of media environment, this old idea. That um, that that freedom of speech must be defended is confronted by 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 the real challenge of massive disinformation and and ultimate kind of impossibility of classifying the kind of texts and images that we're being bombarded with.
1: So that's that's
0: that's the problem and. It's a you know it's a it's a pessimistic piece right. I come out of it saying I I don't know I don't know what what what's going to come or how to resolve this issue. I know I'm still committed to satire in the sense that we understood this from Jonathan Swift through Lawrence Stern and 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 the great caricature tradition up to Charlie Abdul. But I don't know what the relevance of that tradition is for understanding
1: the difficulties at the present moment. Um. Okay, well, thank you for summarizing the piece, and the piece will be linked uh, below this uh, so people can read the whole thing. I have one section here that I cut out that I think is maybe – maybe this is your most controversial uh, paragraph. You write, Over the past few years, I have been made to see in some that the nature and extent of satire is not nearly as simple a question as I had previously imagined. I am now prepared to agree that some varieties of expression that may have some claim to being satire should indeed be prohibited. I note this mm-hmm. not without not with a plan or proposal for where or how such a prohibition might be enforced, but to acknowledge mm-hmm. something I did not fully understand until I experienced it firsthand: that even the most cherished and firmly held values or ideals can change when the world in which those values were first formed changes. Um, okay, so yeah, so we had, <laughs> there's a lot we can discuss here. I just I want to return to the um, the and excuse me for all my uh, mispronunciation of French terms and so forth. The uh, the Charlie Hebdo um, attack in in 2015. Um so I mean the if the source of the attack had to do with this prohibition on images of the Prophet Muhammad. And this is like you know it's it's not something that every um Muslim as far as I know would agree with but some strains of Islam interpret it that way. And so then there started to be kind of around the the time that the new atheists arose this Idea that well we'll like you know stick a finger in the crazy Muslim's eyes by um, doing so that, by like uh, displaying the the Prophet Muhammad's image and there was like draw the Prophet Muhammad art exhibit somewhere that happened yeah. and then so Charlie Hebdo kind of participated in that and they also had a lot of caricatures that yeah. uh, depicted both the Prophet and just like a standard issue uh, Muslim or Arab in a very derogatory way and that seems right. to um, be the kind of yeah. the key thing that uh that inspired the the terrorist attack um and then so then after well i guess the one other thing to note is that part of the the attack or the attack was also um there was an attack on a kosher grocer in paris and people were taken hostage and i think a couple people were killed and it, that guy was an accomplice of the i think two brothers who 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 attacked Charlie Ebdo. um so this so this wasn't like the, the simplified version of this is like they're attacking free speech but it's like oh also like this Jewish stuff was also was also being attacked um, so I actually wrote a piece four years ago which I sent you and I haven't reread in a while so I don't know if it stands up but about this and we'll link to that also um, and then after this happened after the attack happened you know there was horror across the the world and there was like a huge um, march or a rally or something in Paris at which numerous world leaders attended, and uh, but Obama did not attend. I recall and that was controversial. And then uh, and then Charlie Hebdo, you know, like heroically uh, perhaps, uh, <laughs> decided to keep on publishing. And they, yeah. the next week they published uh, an issue with uh, an image of the Prophet Muhammad on the cover, holding up a Jesuit. Charlie sign which became like the rallying cry I am, you know, I am Charlie Hebdo and he said uh, all all is forgiven um, yeah right, right,
0: right, right. And I,
1: which, is, which is a very sorry. interesting image and they didn't have yeah. to do that but um, you know yeah. <laughs> embracing yeah. a, like who is forgiving who and yeah. is, the, yeah, right. is the prophet yeah, forgiving right. Charlie yeah. is Charlie forgiving the killers um, it, it's hard to say and I think it's an image that still is a significant yeah. one but then, okay so yeah so I think there there's there was some extra stuff in the mix there. Um and yeah I was kind of where you were saying like you know the the right to mock our leaders and our religious icons and so forth is you know core to modern life and we can't um take that away just to, and and like yes, give in to, let the terrorists win um by letting yes. them set the speech code other people were saying like you know if you don't have to be needlessly provocative then you know why yeah. do it but there is you no, know, there is like just a human impulse that if you set a rule, there's gonna be someone who's gonna violate that rule and say, you know, look at me, ha ha. Yeah. Um so yeah, okay, so then get it so then yeah, I think things somehow somehow did change in twenty sixteen in a lot of strange yeah. ways. <laughs> um yeah. I mean yeah, one yeah. of them is you know one of them is Trump, uh one of them is social yeah. media kind of acquiring a political power that didn't have before uh the right. rise of the alt right at least online
0: um, Yeah. of course let me let me add also that i think you know one of the things i i i dwell on in my book in irrationality is that the alt right is legitimately a new phenomenon circa you know the mid 2010s in that they really did know how to seize this power of um of jocularity um, that uh that their political foes had lost and you know that the left had become stern and severe and purse and meanwhile you had neo Nazi websites, for example, trading in memes that were extremely v- Let's I, I don't I'm this isn't praise when I say this, but they were extremely vibrant and open to kind of joyous interpretation, right? And so the alt-right is a new phenomenon that shows that kind of the the torch of vulgarity and of satire was passed from one side of the political spectrum to the other, and that's a very significant
1: thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm
0: I interrupted here. Yeah, well, I definitely
1: agree, and I think that that is key. Um, you know, there's there's a, a tweet that became kind of famous because people make fun of it, but there's this guy, um, I can't remember what his actual name is, but his his handle is Prison Planet, and he works with Alex, Alex oh, Jones. Yeah. He's like the British yes. version of Alex Jones. Yeah, right, right, and he, right. He, I he know, tweeted, um, "Conservatism is the new punk rock." And right, right. <laughs> so it was right. like, you know, the liberals that's were the ones we- setting the rules, and then the conservatives were breaking the rules. Um yeah. I don't think that's you know, conservatism is yeah. not punk rock. It's like yeah. usually more authoritarian I
0: mean, than that. Right, like, no, but it's I, I mean, the way I put it is sort of like look, you know, um uh Donald Trump is wavy gravy and um, um, um the the his various kind of in uh online alt right um uh buoy supporter types are equivalent to say Abby Hoffman you know, in the sense that there's a kind of um, uh, uh, playful dimension to all of that that I had not detected until maybe spring of 2016, right? And up until then, I had just kind of passively imagined that satire belongs to a kind of politically radical tradition of the left going back at least to the enlightenment. And that's part of this change that I'm trying to describe.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I did an, an episode about three, it was, it was probably 2015. So what about, about four years ago? That was um, someone, a guy wrote an article for the Atlantic called um, why is there no conservative Jon Stewart? And oh. he kind of surveyed the landscape and talked about some shows that, you know, lasted a season and were canceled and what, what, why could this be? And it kind of like, yeah. So and there, there wasn't a prominent conservative satirist besides like PJ O'Rourke and he's kind of, his time has passed. Um, and, but then it turned out that, that like it was coming from the bottom up, not in these elite, like get a television show or, or, you know, have a newspaper column kind of thing, but like people in basements, um, yes. scattered across That's the land. True.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, I
1: think, yeah. uh, you know, as you were describing your, your essay, I was thinking like, you know, satire, it seems like it's usually an elite concern. It's, you know, you have to have access to a printing press or something back in Jonathan Swift's day. And in, you know, 10 years ago, you would have to get past editors or TV bookers or whatever, you know, you could print a zine or do like stand-up comedy at your local club, but, if you were really out there, like on the, you know, joking about putting Jews in ovens, you're probably not going to like scale up to the national level. Where, so it was always, you know, the people who were for SNL were like Harvard graduates and it was an, yeah, an elite concern. And so, so social media has upended to that, where like anyone who, if they, you know, have the talent to attract a following, they, people start paying attention yeah. to them. And also, I think, you know, I, I mean,
0: I, I, I see the analysis of, Satire as maybe a, a sub question within the broader question of, let's say, the analysis of free speech and how it, how it, and, and the political ramifications of the defense of free speech. Um, and my views on free speech have also transformed in the past few years. I think you know when I was a kid and. You know, if, uh, I, I just kind of possibly accepted the liberal, uh, uh, kind of, uh, account of things by the, the mythical card-carrying member of the ACLU, mocked by Archie Bunker, <laughs> the person who would say, well, no, it's good to let the Nazis march in Skokie or wherever, um, because, uh, uh, they're American citizens too, and they're exercising their right to free speech. And in any case, uh, it's less potent if they get their parade than if their parade is banned, right? That I, I, that always sounded reasonable to me. Um, I think that that was um, a consequence of the fact that when I was a kid, the. Future scenario in which the Nazis on parade in Skokie seize power seemed so far away that it didn't really seem like something worth worrying about and so now it's not a parade down the streets of Skokie that we're talking about it is a uh, you know a a, a, a collective uh, ferment online but I think now when we look at what's I, I've heard a wonderful term, I forget who uh who coined it, but the notion of stochastic terrorism, right? Mm, um you, yeah.
1: need,
0: you don't need to um instruct anyone, any individual, to go shoot up a synagogue in Pittsburgh, you just need to get enough of a ferment of people um, saying the sort of thing that is eventually going to get someone to go shoot up a synagogue somewhere um, to be implicated in the shooting. Right, And in that respect, I think this old facile idea that we always know what the difference is between uh, expressing an opinion on the one hand and incitement to violence on the other hand, that's gone. That just doesn't fit with our new predicament where... Most public speech is now taking place online and I don't know what to do about that I don't know how to rewrite the first amendment but um but I think I think I think the facile idea that I grew up with just belongs to a different era yeah
1: um yeah because you see
0: connected to the question of satire right because the, the idea is that that similarly, um, that we have a certain, a certain genre of expression that is satirical and therefore worthy of a special kind of analysis and a special kind of protection um, no longer makes any sense in a world in which we're just constantly bombarded with text and images that we don't, the, the intention of which we don't really understand. That's the connection between the, the speech and the satire.
1: Yeah, and um, yeah, there's a lot of naughty questions in here. Uh, you know, there's the fact that you know, these things are usually, these speech acts are usually mediated through a, you know, for-profit <laughs> social media company that, uh, is, makes more money the more time people spend looking at it and reloading it and stuff and participating in it. Uh, and so they seem to have some, it's either that, well, especially Twitter has some kind of inability to either find the people and ban them or they're, they kind of tolerate them because these people generate a lot of, like, ad, yeah views or whatever um and yeah and both you know uh, 30 years ago if you wanted to do a death threat or something it was somewhat more complicated if you called it in they could trace your number i guess or you had to like write a letter out and send it whereas now someone today just posted um saying here are all the death threats that uh ilhan omar got on twitter and there were uh, like, there were like a hundred at least and you know pretty explicit ones that you would think if someone actually, you know, if someone said this, I, it's funny that I just said actually. If someone said this, you would like want to go investigate them because they were someone saying I have a rope and I'm going to come for you or something like that. Um, but it, it's it's in this kind of, uh, in Twitter, it's like a kind of netherworld who is saying this. Uh, is it is it a real person? Is it someone in another country trying to uh, mess with our system or something? And yeah, and it, it kind of, I don't know, it, it's desensitized us to, to certain things. And it's, yeah, I don't know how to, how to make sense of it. Um, yeah. So, okay, well, let me, let's, let's go back towards kind of some of the Trump stuff and how Trump has changed things. So one, one thing is the, the idea of fake news and uh, you know, that's the term that he popularized and he just uses it to mean any reporting in the media that he doesn't like, but like, it seems like there, you know, there actually was fake news that was created by, Organizations, it's unclear exactly why. Some of them were like in Macedonia or Albania and they would they would create like a, web, a website that looked like a news page and they would say uh, you know Pope Francis endorses Donald Trump and this, yeah. see, this seems to be either just as a way to get page views so they could sell yeah. you know uh, volume something some of
0: these teenagers who were running these things in Macedonia some of them said yeah I started I started out running a Bernie site until I realized there was more ad revenue in Trump and when the election is over I think I'm going to switch to soccer <laughs> it was extremely non-committal uh, or unideological,
1: but. Right. So they, yeah, they just saw a market they could exploit of like gullible Trump supporters on Facebook. Um, so yeah, so then you have to wonder, you know, were there like how many people? So, you know, Pope Francis endorses Trump. That could be an onion article of some sort or an onion type article. And then. You know, but if someone is just sees it on a Facebook article and clicks on it, do they believe it? Like, can, do they have yeah. a, one second of reflection to think, well, the Pope never endorses anyone. So this wouldn't happen. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, that's in a weird kind of satirical zone, but it doesn't have the purpose of satire. Right. It might just be a way to sell pills or something. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, I, I think I mentioned in the
0: article, you know, I, 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 I reflect all the way back to 2002 uh, in the article when there was, there was a piece in the onion uh that was satirizing the demands of sports teams to make municipal governments build stadiums for them so the the joke was that uh US the US Congress was um was on strike until Washington D.C. Uh, built a new capital for them. So what happened in 2002 was that some, you know, state-controlled media outlet in Beijing uh, got wind of this and um, thought it was horrible that these decadent American politicians were so petulant about something so so minor, and they reported on this seriously in the news in China. Then when they learned that it was satire, um, they released a further statement. And said something like, well, you know, some, um, some base and venal American media outlets publish whatever, uh, they think will, uh, will sell more copies or they Back then, we didn't speak in terms of cliques yet, uh, and I remember reading that and thinking, wow, these stiff Chinese bureaucrats look so ridiculous, they don't even get what the onion is, right, in 2002, right? But, you know, in a sense, they were absolutely right. They could not have been more right. Um, and the onion is still, in some sense, a venerable institution, and most of us know what its deal is and how it works and so can appreciate it, but it has spawned millions, or not millions, but it has spawned countless uh imitators and um let's say uh uh, uh feeds and sources that somewhat copy that form but without any commitment to uh satire as a noble endeavor, right? <laughs> and so if you don't have that commitment anymore, really all you've got is fake news. It's all you've got. It's all that's left over. Um and um and it, it is an extremely difficult task in the current media environment to sift the one out from the other, to legitimate the one while saying the other is dangerous and toxic and needs to be needs to be weeded out by better algorithms and so on. Um, and you know, for the moment, the best answer, the best solution, is to put a satire disclaimer on on the thing. <laughs> like the New Yorker does with Andy Borowitz, but that is an absolute, you know, last resort because in a sense, to do that, to state what your what the nature of your undertaking is, is the is 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 the death knell of satire. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: So so part of what and part of what our contemporary problem is, is that um, reality has become so strange that it can be hard to delineate the line between satire and real life. So if you had told someone 30 years ago, Donald Trump would be president, they would have thought that was a joke. And um, you, you mentioned this um, tweet that uh, went viral about the Gorilla Channel. Yeah, right. right, right, right. <laughs> Do you want to that surprise was, the yeah, Gorilla yeah. Channel?
0: Yeah, the the, 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 I, I don't know who this guy is, someone who runs a Twitter account called The Pixelated Vote. He's like, I know, uh, I know a
1: little bit about him. He's, he's a cartoonist and he lives in Australia yeah. and I think he's semi-, oh, yeah. he's semi Oh, he's Australian. Yeah. Oh wow,
0: well, I would have assumed he was American. He, he writes a lot
1: about uh, American politics. I think just is more of
0: Basically, most of what he comes up with is pretty successful in my view. He's, he often makes me laugh. Um but the Gorilla Channel thing was, um just, you know, uh, uh, purported to be a page taken from uh, the recently published fire and fury, um, the expose of Trump's first days in the white house. And the idea was that supposedly when Trump got to the white house, he was, he was disheartened to learn that white house Kate, ca- the white house cable TV package didn't include something he called the gorilla channel. And so his aides. Um, uh, set up a broadcasting ta- p- tower outside his window and found footage and made videotapes of gorillas um, uh for you know enough for a twenty four hour a day T V cycle. But Trump was still disappointed because uh there weren't enough scenes of gorill- the guerrillas fighting. They only fought, you know, once every now and then the rest of the time just ate or slept or whatever. And so his aides aide de con quickly went and edited the the footage down so that it only showed guerrillas fighting, at which point Trump got glued to his screen and couldn't, couldn't be torn away. And I had some ridiculous, um, Ridiculous Yale Trump, Trump supporting Yaley, um right on some, some, some website called, some, it had something to do, I think it's called like AmericanGreatness.org or uh-huh. something like this, saying that because I acknowledged in this piece that I had momentarily been taken in by this guerrilla channel joke, like I, for a split second, I believed it was true. I, I mean, and by believing it was true, what I meant was I believed that it was authentically a page from fire and Fury. Yeah, it was,
1: it was like an image mocked up to look like it was a page, like yeah. a page from the book.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so that's, that's a, that's a minor factual correction <laughs> against this, this Trump supporting kid at Yale. But other than that, this kid, this kid thought I was a dupe of anti-Trump propaganda that I could ever have believed such a thing. Um, and, um, um you know, uh, was I a dupe? Um, I think there's plenty that we've seen from Trump that he is as stupid as wanting to watch the Gorilla Channel. I mean, I would want to watch the Gorilla Channel if it existed. <laughs> Um, you know, um, I mean, Trump when when he was interviewed during the election campaign about foreign policy questions um, by the you know this this um, uh, crack team of the best journalists at the Washington Post, I think it was, and um, and they were asking him questions about what to do about you know containing China and in the, in the South China Sea and stuff like that. And within seconds, he was talking about the great deal he got on marble for his hotel in Washington DC. And, you know, that was all he could come up with for these complicated geopolitical questions. That is as stupid as the geo, excuse me, that is as stupid as the Guerrilla Channel satire, right? So for this person to tell me that I was a sucker for believing (laughs) this satire, well, I can come right back and say there are many documented real cases of trump being just as stupid so that's just an aside um but um uh uh uh, uh so i i th- i i did think the, the, that the gorilla channel joke was a successful joke it worked it was right at that special zone between plausibility and implausibility. Yeah,
1: I was laughing just hearing you d- like recount yeah. the uh the details of it. it yeah. It's great. It was great. But at the same time, it was disconcerting
0: in a way that no onion line has ever been, right? It was disconcerting because it popped up in a media landscape where I didn't know how to process it. And I think I'm Pretty sophisticated, um, when it comes to processing information that I get from social media. Um I didn't know how to process it and ultimately the complaint about the pixelated boat that it is, it is trading in disinformation is hard to refute, right? That's the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm reminded that there's a book I'm sure you've uh, read it uh, within the context of no context oh
0: yeah 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 you yeah, know,
1: yeah. I, I I read that and I honestly don't really remember that much about it, but just the title itself uh-huh. is coming to me because I think it was mainly about television um and it yeah, was like yeah, written extra. in the eighties um, but you know when you things appear if you're on a social media site things appear in your feed uh, without yeah. context and yeah. um you know so maybe a clue if you're paying close attention would be that. Why would a cartoon boat be tweeting an image of a picture, you know, of of a page from *Fire and Fury* before like anyone else had it? So that's part of yeah. it. That's a clue. But then also, like, you know, you're not really totally paying attention to this, and you're skimming through, and you see something that looks real, and so um you, yeah, you believe it. And I can, you know, the the line between this was like this was just a joke, and like we are trying to fool you in order to mislead you so that you like do something that you. Sh- don't want to do, yeah. uh, gets, yeah. gets thinner when you don't know where these things are coming from or what's, what's really motivating people.
0: Yeah, um,
1: yeah. but I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether like Trump in the, in the age of Trump, you know, what is, what is the use of satire? Like the, yeah. the reality is the satire and crazy things happen every day in, in Trump's America where we're, we could, you could just, you know, you couldn't like make it up. So, yeah. it, it, whereas, you know, like, during the Bush administration, there was, it was, in a way, a golden age for satire with The Onion and, especially the Colbert report, The Daily Show. Uh yeah. And, I don't know, and, and the media landscape is different now, and Colbert is still on the air, but in a totally different form, and he's not, yeah. not as political as he, as he used to be. But it's yeah. kind of like no one has, and SNL is like, almost totally, you know, neutered, and they never really do anything <laughs> tough against Trump. So, yeah. is it like, Trump is untouchable because he's an absurd figure or or what? Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. Well, look, there's so much to say here. I mean, first of all, I, I wish George Trow were still alive. I don't, I don't remember when he died, but you know, when you look at his writing on television, um, um, it's in a way it seems particularly relevant to the present moment, but then in another way, television is just so different, it, you know, and I think, um, of course, you know, when I was a kid and I, I did grow up in the pre-internet era, uh, uh, and I perfectly well remember many people very worried about the tube and, you know, being, um, being, uh, uh, sucked in by the tube and how this was you know taking away people's souls and stuff like that um and so i do try to be cautious and keep things in historical perspective but at the same time it was just such a different animal because it was unidirectional it only went one way um and it was filled with cues that let you know, even if you weren't reflecting on it, that let you know what it was doing. For example, I mean, most obviously the laugh track, right? right. Um, the laugh track is telling you when something is intended as funny, whether it is or not, right? Um, and um, and so it was filled with these cues and it was like, you know, it's just kind of a known commodity, Um and I really feel like we just aren't dealing with anything like that right now. And this might have something to do with the you know, the real um I mean look, I, I, I live in Europe and I and I don't really have access to uh, what I call palliative liberal comedy in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, that is, you know, the stuff that is designed to, um, delight the, the Krasenstein twins.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or whatever
0: they are. Um, for, for people uh, who
1: aren't on Twitter, these are two kind of unusual people. They're, they're identical twins and they, uh, have, you know, 500,000 followers each and they like are, you know, self-styled resistance leaders and are tweeting constantly.
0: Yeah. And every, everything that is, that, you know, that is even remotely insulting towards Donald Trump, whether it reaches him or not, the tendency is to say boom, or you know, or to, to treat this as as like, you know, the final, the final takedown of this of this guy. And of course he's still there, right? So it hasn't worked. And um you know I I I there was a nice piece that I, I cite in my book, I forget who the author is, uh uh that was talking about a very popular comedy duo in Nazi Germany, um Tran and Ella. Tran und Heller um were a popular comedy duo, and they were mildly um subversive, right? Uh within reason. They made fun of the appearance of um Goebbels, for example, right? Um um, and they were beloved by um, by the Germans who still had access to radio and so on. And they were tolerated by the regime. Right. And I think it's a good um, it's a good kind of rule of thumb uh, when you are looking at when you're watching Saturday Night Live to ask yourself, OK, is this more like Khan und Helle? Or is this more like some truly explosive revolutionary comedy that threatens the system? And I'm sorry, but all of this palliative television stuff is um, is 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 uh, let's say fully absorbed within the entertainment, information, political system that also generated Trump. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. um. Yeah, and I'm thinking, I was reminded of a tweet by, um, uh, Jesse Farrar, who is, has a podcast oh. and is a, uh, <laughs> kind of funny guy. He's actually on this show about a year ago. And he, he so he tweeted this in October 1st, 2016. He says, uh, well, I'd like to see old Donnie Trump wriggle his way out of this jam. Uh, that <laughs> Trump wriggles his way out of the jam easily. Ah, well, nevertheless. And people retweet this all the time because there, like, there's something about Trump, and who knows? The Mueller report is like so the unredacted yeah. Mueller report so is supposed to be coming, you know, within 72 hours. So who knows? But he's—he does seem yeah. to be able to, like, he's te- like he's Teflon. There used to be this uh, Teflon Don in the New York City yeah, um, right, right, right. Uh, press, which was referring to uh, Don. Or maybe Teflon, Teflon Don, John Gotti was a Teflon Don. Uh, but. Oh, I was thinking Don King. I I have trouble. Like all of these cultural references just left each other. Uh, but yeah, but uh, you know, I think it has something to do with uh, Trump's like total lack of shame and also the absurd persona that he developed for himself before, you know, before this, like, you know, they, they put orange makeup and a crazy wig on Alec Baldwin to be Trump, but like, it's like Trump himself is the clown already. So, so trying to do a like impression exactly. of him that, that takes on his clown-like aspects, it's, it somehow doesn't work. Whereas, you know, like SNL had a good take on like Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. Not, not so much on Obama, but the, it's like, yeah. you know, he's yeah. gone so far yeah. into absurdity that yeah. you, you yeah. can't, you yeah. can't like satirize him. It seems like.
0: I mean, Bill Clinton is the sweet spot, isn't he? Because he, I mean, Bill Clinton is just hilarious. Like, you know, he's such a, such a resource for humor. Um, Obama was too serious and Trump is just too, too far out there. Whereas Clinton was just the
1: perfect, the perfect meme. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know... (laughs) So at some point in the next four to eight years or so, (laughs) trouble pass off the scene, hopefully. And and then it's like, what will happen? I really have no idea if, if people will just be so exhausted from this that they don't want like political satire and things of that nature. You know, they just want to like turn inward. So I, I really don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, I don't think satire is going to go anywhere. I think, you know, it's um, in a way, I I don't mean to sound so pessimistic, because I do think that in a sense that this is a golden age of of satire. It's, It's incredible what's happening, and it surely... Rivals the 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 heady moment in the kind of the birth of the newspaper era, the the, the mid to late nineteenth centuries in France and a bit later in the United States, um, where you just had this vibrant culture of caricatural undercutting of um, all of the the pieties on which society rests. Right. And we're experiencing something like that right now. And, and, you know, ultimately I should be happy about this. Right. Because, I, because I, 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 I love satire. I think the satirical mood is the, the best one to apprehend the affairs of the world. Right. Um, and, um, and so I should be happy about this. And in a way I am, um, I don't think it's going to disappear whatever the future of politics has in store, but I do think it's under some kind of very significant transformation right now because of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, this is strict technological determinism at work. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. I, I think there was, you know, a, <laughs> the I, I agree with you that is mostly technological determinism and then it's like, did part of that create the opening for Trump or did did the Trump thing like come and it just hit at the right moment that Trump, this like totally sui generis figure and the technological media moment intersected and it gave us this bizarre time that we live in. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think that that's, that's surely the, the, the most, the most plausible account of what has happened. It was, it was a, a collision of different factors both technological determinism and, um, uh, uh, a single irreducible individual who happened to be alive at that moment in the history of technology.
1: <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So Trump sees the moment or like the moment sees him. I don't know which one. Um, yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, your book, uh, Irrationality and how, yeah, how what the connection is between what you're, what, what we were discussing and the, the thesis of that book?
0: Yeah, it's it's a strange book because I, I mean the the full title is Irrationality, a History of the Dark Side of Reason. And it just appeared with uh Princeton University Press um at the beginning of this month of April. Um and I try to do a lot of things in it. You know, I in my in my in my um my kind of formation I am a historian and philosopher of science. Um I wrote my dissertation on Leibniz, um, and Leibniz is kind of still a major looming figure for me. Um, the great rationalist philosopher. Uh, and I was trying in this book to kind of um, taxonomize all of the different species of irrationality. Right. Not in a not, I didn't come to condemn, you know, I'm not saying that irrationality is bad and needs to be suppressed. I just wanted to lay out all of the different ways it expresses itself. So I kind of started making a list and, you know, trying to look at the way we actually talk about irrationality in in everyday speech. and I realize that there are two levels Ra- Irrationality functions at both the social political level in um, phenomena such as mass violence, perhaps um, mass spectator sports, um, uh, orgiastic revelries of all sorts. Um, and at the individual level, it manifests itself in the form of, let's say drunkenness, um, but also, dreams whether daydreaming or actually dreaming um uh also jokes um and also the kind of let's say square one of irrationality which is uh the failure to follow through with logical inferences like logical fallacy right but jokes in particular um deserved one full chapter in the book because jokes have a strained relationship to logic, to logical argumentation, to syllogism, stuff like that, in the sense that they seem to me to be kind of like perverted syllogisms, right? Where um, they um, they push you in the direction of a conclusion, that is to say, in the case of a joke, a punchline, but they do it in this kind of yeah perverted way right that push you to a conclusion that you don't see coming so Kant Immanuel Kant famously said that a joke is um, the sudden transformation of a strained expectation into nothing right so it 's like the joke has you has you thinking it's going to go one way and then poof, it just collapses right uh-huh. whereas the logical argument is the gradual transformation of a building expectation into something, right? Um, Not a sudden transformation into nothing, but a gradual development into something, right? So it dawned on me that jokes are like, you know, the mirror image, like the messed up image of logical reasoning. Um And that just really captivated me as an idea, and I thought this again this 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 warrants at least some sustained treatment in a book that surveys different uh dimensions of human irrationality
1: um that sounds very interesting uh did you i- i guess i so i haven't read the book and know nothing about it besides what you just said. Did you start it before our current era of craziness? <laughs> uh-
0: No, I mean, you know, in a sense, I, I, um, started talking about it with, um, with my, 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 my main editor around 2000, um, late 2015. And, um, the way we were originally talking about it it was something different it would have been more strictly historical like here's the way the greeks dealt with irrationality here's the way the medievals dealt with irrationality etc right and at some point i think i got back to my 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 editor the you know in the course of talking about how the book was developing and said look I'm just too captivated right now by current affairs i can't write this book and not allow it to be about among other things the 2016 elections and so the book became a weird hybrid of you know me carrying on about narrow scholarly things i've i've picked away at for years now about you know uh, uh cicero on logical fallacy and stuff like that and About Twitter, right? So it's a (laughs) it's a strange hybrid, and I hope I hope some people like
1: it. (laughs) You'll see. Um. Oh, yeah. That's that sounds interesting. It sounds on my alley. I'll have to to check it out, and maybe maybe we can have you back on uh, to uh, get a chance to read it, talk about it. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, we've gone about an hour. Should we? And it's it's probably like after midnight where you are. Should we wrap up? Um. Sounds good.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I think this is a nice. It feels like a, like an hour long episode. a <laughs> Nice beginning and end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Cool. So, um, where uh, do you have a website or Twitter feed that you would direct people to if they are if they want to find out more about your writing?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm. My uh, is jehsmith um, That's just kind of my repository of all sorts of things about me and what I'm doing. And I am hesitantly still on Twitter um, at J J E H Smith. J-E-H Smith. Uh and I've closed my Facebook. Um and uh if my publishers, um publicity people would allow me, I would probably close Twitter too, because I think it's absolutely, absolutely destructive to everything that I
1: cherish in society. <laughs> Um, oh man! Uh, for, for, the, for the moment, I'm still there. <laughs> it's uh, research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a um. I you know I, I there's gonna be a, a like multiple memoirs written about like Twitter, you know, Twitter addiction and people hating it and loving it at the same time and t- it taking over their lives. Um. Okay. Well. Uh. Yeah. If you are on that awful website, Twitter.com, I, my handle is a r y e h c w. And uh, you can subscribe to this show in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and so on and so forth. Uh, So um, thank you, Justin, for coming on. Thanks, Arya. That was a lot of fun. And thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.